You're listening to Inside the Boardroom, powered by Onboard. I'm your host, Adam Wire. Today, we chat with Donna Hamlin, CEO of BoardWise. Donna will share best practices for board evaluations, annual planning, and more. Uh, welcome to another episode of Inside the Boardroom podcast, uh, with uh, sponsored by Onboard. Uh, this episode, we're very uh, fortunate to have with us uh, Donna Hamlin. She is the, co- the founder and CEO of Boardwise, uh, boardwise.biz, B-I-Z, if you'd uh, like to go to visit her website. Donna is a consultant and advisor for boards uh, across the world. Uh, she specializes in, in board evaluations and, and board annual planning, among other things. Uh, Donna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, you joined us last year for a session on uh, board planning and, and evaluations, and we're happy to have you uh, join us for another session soon here, uh, probably after when this podcast airs. But um, we did want to pick your brain on what the evaluation process is for most boards. How do high-performing boards utilize that process in their annual planning or their strategy going forward? And what's some of the context or history behind evaluations? Uh, uh, you, you've told me before it's, it's a relatively recent uh, feature in most boards' annual planning, planning process. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yes. In the arc of time, it is a relatively new concept. In the early days, governance used to be just oversight. And the intent and the meaning of it was because investors were putting money into things and they wanted to make sure that they had a voice. And governance was all about making sure that representation was taken care of. It wasn't until the bank crisis in 2007 and eight, when people started looking at it from a different lens. Prior to that, people were looking at governance as a a nice thing to do to help businesses grow. And it was covering balance and check, checks and balances kinds of things in every country but Finland. You don't want anything to do with boards, go to Finland. It's not obligatory. <laughs> Although many com- companies there do do it, it's not legally required. When the bank crisis hit, everybody sat up in their chair because the collapse of so many things created enough concern that regardless of what country you were in, they were all looking at what things should we do to make it different. Mm-hmm. And what I'd say is that field of the next decade was nothing but experiments all over the world on things that might make it better. Now, experiments are great, but the only way to know whether they have any impact is to study it over a time period of at least five years to see what the results are based on those experiments. And what we did was spend a lot of time looking at outcomes based on those experiences and those experiments. And... change from oversight moving into a greater context is what's happening now. People are saying, all right, if we're going to change and the experiences are different, what is the impact we're looking for that makes the difference? Instead of people hating boards, we would like boards to be proud of something that they're contributing in a new way. And that really has caused organizations now to reframe what governance is all about, using principles about what's our purpose, what is the accountability we want to hold going forward, and based on what culture you're in, it's going to be a different view because governance is not governance is not governance depending on what country you're in. Mm-hmm. And then, 
what are some examples where that 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 governance difference differs by by region or country? Oh, Europe compared to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vietnam compared to China. I mean, every country is going to have a slightly different contextual understanding of what the point is. Mm-hmm. And we looked at it from the economists looking at what things will drive success in governance. And depending on each culture, it's different yet again. So it, it you should not assume that if you're doing really, really well with your governance in the, in the United States, that it'll fit just fine in Sweden. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't work that way. And when you when you talk about those differences, is it is it particular factors that that you know that are measured differently, or is it just a, a different view of of the board's mission or the director's purpose within fulfillment of that mission? Both and both. It, the real orientation has to do with what they think is the best way to nudge for success. Some are going to think of it in terms of policies and practices. Some of them think of it in terms of skills, and. Others are going to look at it based on the market will push that. Mm-hmm. And so depending on where the cultural assets are or beliefs, you're going to get different kinds of attempts or direction. And, you know, what the federal level would tell you and the business industry, like the banks put in all kinds of extra regulatory requirements on top of the government ones after the banking. Mm-hmm. They thought that'll fix it. Yeah. It isn't always true. And whether you're principle-based or you're regulatorily required are two different philosophies. For example, when you're looking at diversity on boards, mm-hmm. if it's forced, like it was in Malaysia, where women had to serve on boards, 30% of them had to be native Malaysian women. It was just a law. They mm-hmm. did that before they had any women ready. They passed the law and they held a uh, a punishment if they didn't conform. That's quite different than Canada that is now putting in a principle-based notion that they would like to see diversity, but there's no punishments. It's just a principle that they'd like to push. You get different results based on that. Yeah. And I think that there's some correlate um, regulation that's happened here in the United States. Uh, of course, you know, California uh, ruling that's, that's now been struck down of um, you know, you had to have a certain number of women on the board or a certain number of uh, ethnic representation. And a lot of boards that were headquartered in California made progress very quickly before the California Supreme Court struck that down. Do you think that was a different scenario where, where in California there was more board ready leaders within those minorities? Yes, I would say so. There's a lot more of that comfort zone here in California than there may be in many other states. And it, it really depends on the nature of the business itself and whether they see the value of that. I mean, DEI is a controversial topic in many places, but it it depends on where you're looking. I worked on a <laughs> on a board where the chair of the board, oh, I can't believe he said it, but he did, said, why don't they spell it D-I-E? I hate this. <laughs> Well, there's, there's wearing your heart on your sleeve, I guess. Yeah, and so I wrote an article after the latest stuff that had come out, you know, and I said, DEI will not D-I-E. <laughs> um, and you, you touched upon this and, and thinking about, uh, you know, the, the effectiveness of boards. We've, we've certainly done some studies. We re- recently released our board effectiveness study in, in June of this year of, of 23. 
And one thing that said that, um, you know, really stuck out to me was um, I think it was 85 percent of people said, you know, the one thing that's holding our back, our board back from being more effective is having really clear definition around the board's mission, uh, the organizational mission, and then what the individual director's responsibilities and fulfillment of that mission were. Gotcha. Um, and that seems to have some resonance with that diversity conversation as well of, um, oh, let's just get a, a, a person of color or let's get a woman on the board. Um, and then we've done our due diligence or, you know, we've done, we've checked our box um, and we'll just move on from there. That seems like a recipe for disaster, at least failure for me. Well, it, it, what it does is create representation, but not influence. And that's mm-hmm. silly. And the, the economists who are doing that research are looking at it. There's a gentleman in Canada who's done some interesting research on that and said, uh, these diversity people who are joining have no power. They have no voice. They sit at the table, though. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is to bring diversity of thought to the table. That's the factor that really matters. And unless you are hearing all those voices, it, it, what's the point? Right. Oh, yeah. I, I've heard also that it takes a really kind of proactive chair to be able to to pull that. You know, for somebody who may not be, uh, uh, you know, doesn't feel as comfortable speaking extemporaneously or they're just joining the board. You really have to pull proactively pull that, that experience out of those, those new directors. Yeah. And to go back to your earlier comment about the board purpose. Now it is really an existential shift that's going on when companies now are saying, why are we here? Really? What's the purpose? And then how do we make ourselves accountable and then finally successful in our contributions? And, Maybe some of that came from the COVID era where everybody was getting existential and second guessing what they're doing and why. But in the board level, European entities were quite early on on starting to deepen the definition of accountability. And, you know, American boards would say, oh, I hate those people. They're, they're putting too much on our plate. And yet what they were doing was taking on more responsibility. And it, it really was starting to look at trend spotting and understanding what things are coming at us so that we could prepare for it. So now today, we're all looking at that activism. We're looking at um, risk management in different ways, technology coming at us from every angle. And that means how do we manage change? Mm-hmm. And the companies that are going to thrive through all of this are the ones that are most adaptable. Right. If you don't have that skill in your board and your management, you're toast. Mm-hmm. And as these things come at you, if you've got a balance of your governance along with your management working well together in a collaboration formula, then you will get the balance that you need for success. If you're pushing one but not the other, what you're going to have is a lot of um, conflict as opposed to actual performance. And in the most, if the most adaptable organizations are going to win, then every company has to understand the changes coming from technology and you know new directions on entrepreneurship with innovation that can create different ways to get the work done. Mm-hmm. And the, the delta of that is, oh, my God, there's a lot more work to do. We've got more committees. We've got new structures. We've got milestones that have to make a difference for us that we never held ourselves responsible for earlier. Yeah. 
And, and as you mentioned, in an increasingly interconnected global world, both in, in economies and, and disruptions of scale and you know, supply chains and um, an increasingly connected world for Zoom and all these other technologies. And then, as you mentioned, I think you alluded to just the, the, the speed of uh, innovation and adaptation is, is just uh, exponentially growing with things like artificial intelligence and things like that. Yeah. I just read this morning some research on AI used to be able to talk to whales. We'll be able to communicate with whales. I would like to know if we could do it with people <laughs> to get their intelligence or their insights or to at least do it with dolphins mm-hmm. instead of whales because dolphins are the one example of never having war or fight. They are so smart. They know how to work, work around an issue, right. train ourselves with whatever those dolphins, if, if they could teach us, I think we'd be a better sense of humor. <laughs> games, you know? And then, but okay. you're right in, in the international perspective of governance, you really have to know that there are legal and cultural differences that play a big role in maximizing what the contribution of governance could or might be. And then when you've got different countries with cultures that are different, that the government systems that are playing a role navigate some of the perspective of what a board can or ought to do or must do. Mm-hmm. And then not everybody's in agreement on what a business is for. And so you get that cultural ba- battleground going on. You want to be careful to make sure that there is an a fortitude of the groups, both the management and the board, aligned on direction so that you're not having a wasted energy in the group. Yeah, literally getting everybody on board, so to speak. (laughs) Fancy, you know, you can name a company that. (laughs) Um, I'm curious, Don, you mentioned animals, and I'm thinking of different animals or or animals of a different stripe. You're obviously an expert in in global public uh, companies or corporate enterprises, do you find these same these same rules apply to say higher education or, or nonprofits or trade associations, other board led organizations? Uh, more so than ever, really. Mm-hmm. Some of the studies that we're looking at, the people who are looking at possibilities for acquiring another company, look at their governance to see if it's done well before they would do an acquisition. Mm-hmm. So even if you're privately held or you're a nonprofit or something that might be merged into something else, you want to have a high impact confidence in your governance component of it because it will be part of the audit. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I, I feel personally, too, that just the, the more um, the work you put into that documentation, that, that getting everybody on the, on the same page, so to speak, that work um, rolls forward. Um, so onboarding becomes easier. Um, getting that new director from a different uh, industry or a different uh, personal background is, is, is easier. If you have that all well-documented in a central repository or some, some kind of shared documentation system that people can learn from. Um, let's, let's get into the, like, the nitty-gritty of um, board evaluations themselves. When a customer or a, a company approaches you, Donna, and the BoardWise uh, group, what are they asking for and, and what are you delivering when you, you, you conduct a board evaluation with or for them? When we first started doing this, we made an online tool that people could complete with questions on all the key areas that would be part of any evaluation. And interestingly enough, no one wanted to do that. They wanted an interview. Mm-hmm. 
And so we changed it. I mean, we can still do it online, but what we've done now are in-depth interviews. And it's a combination of both the directors and executives to get both perspectives, especially because of the collaboration requirements. Although there is a new tool that's come out of Europe now that we are using for an online assessment from the management as well, which is worth taking a look at. It's been developed by Mirror Mirror, and it's a great tool. If you can combine those insights, then what we do is sit down with the board and the management and walk through what the high impact factors are that are working well and suggestions of things that could improve it yet again. So everybody has a voice, which is important. And then you're getting the perspective based on people's experiences. And sometimes when you've got an interesting mix, we're doing one right now that has veterans on the board and they've added five new ones. These guys don't feel like they've had a voice yet and they've got a lot of questions. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot more education to be done, which means the onboarding needs to be more thorough to your point earlier. Now, when you, When we do it, we're looking at the research around the globe as to what high impact companies are doing, the high performance ones. And we use those variables as part of our uh, question line to take a look at what's actually making a difference. And there's about uh, 14 high impact results. And one of those, for example, is the increase in the number of hours dedicated to board work, which is expanding. It used to be a typical four to six meetings, and it's not that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the number of members on committees, because the structures are changing, is another one to look at. Audit and risk are now being broken into two committees. And that is because the nature of the work and the demands of expertise required adding a cybersecurity expert or someone in culture change or climate change, or you name it, all these special areas that we need to bring in to round out our thinking. The highest variable, though, the most impactful one has to do with the functionality of the group dynamics, the ability of the members to appreciate and leverage their diversity of thought in a graceful way so that they actually get the benefits of it and at a minimum enjoy each other's company in the work <laughs> they're doing as opposed to shaking their head. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about that because, yeah, I, I've heard um, from some, some great chairs that we've had the opportunity to interview that, that um, you know, they take it that that's their responsibility is to set the tenor, the tone and set the expectation for culture. Is that only the chair's role or, or is our directors responsible for, for contributing to that as well? Well, if, if the board has a healthy charter of what they're supposed to do as a whole group, there should be some code of conduct for behavior that should be recognized. And mm-hmm. you could have that broken down between the chair to hold accountability during a meeting or the lead in the director to be the one to call it out. Or, you know, we look at styles as part of our work. We identify the styles and the unifier is the one that has the best diplomacy skills. Mm -hmm. We often say, make sure it's the unifier that is the one that says, Sam, we've heard a lot from you, but we'd like to hear from Sally now. Could could we let her finish her sentences, please? (laughs) Get away with it, you know. Yeah. And, And that's important for just the 
constellation of everyone's voice getting represented. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel in any any meeting, there's there's always the the devil's advocate or the or the, the, the person who brings a, a certain unique point of view or candor. Um, do you think is part of that that cultural setting, that expectation setting, um, setting the expectation that we expect you to be candid? You should ask tough questions. Um, you know, a question unasked is is just as bad as a question un, un, unanswered in a sense. That's right. You should encourage that sort of debate and that sort of candor so that you can get the facts and stats on the table that need to be looked at in in a proper way, though, not in an argument for dissing somebody for an idea. Right. And that skill may or may not be in your board. And then you've got a problem with his no. Yeah. And then just to, to bring it back to the, the diversity, uh, even professional diversity, let's say, um, we, we know and studies have shown that homogenous groups tend to engage in group think. Uh, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly what I was thinking. Behavior um, think, right. Yeah. How do you leverage the, the diversity in the room? In, in, obviously, it sounds like it'd be one of the roles that the chair could, could um, contribute there of, hey, you know, so-and-so is new to the board. Let's hear what their perspective is. Is that, a, is that an accurate way to, to, to draw on that experience? Or Yes. And particularly if you're in a board that has some different members from cultures that have been trained to be quiet, mm-hmm. you have to pull it out. I'm working with another group now who has someone from Japan and someone from uh, another Asian group, and they're reticent. They just sit and they listen and they nod and they listen and they nod because that was part of their cultural training, Mm -hmm. only to respond when queried. And so the chair started doing more of that. Yeah. then people would just stop and their jaws would drop because the insights were so powerful. And they are trying to say, now that you're in a U.S. board culture, you can break the rules of Japan now and you can speak up and it's okay. No, I don't think so, but thank you for asking me. <laughs> yeah, You have to pull it out if it's not happening naturally. Right. And, and you said, that, you mentioned this earlier in, in uh, some of our data that we've looked at post-COVID holds true as well, is that there's not only um, more time spent on board work because there's more frequent board meetings. Um, that's something we noticed within our anonymized set of data when we actually looked at the duration of board meetings post-COVID and, and before COVID, that the, the frequencies of meetings, since they were online, went way up. Right. Um, you cannot do an eight-hour Zoom unless you, you have a, a you know, very strong cup of coffee, I guess. Um, but then last time you joined us, you also said the number of directors, the average number of directors per board was going up. So it, it sounds like we're, in a sense, piling more and more work on the boards and the chairs. Um, how do they navigate that? What are, I don't want to say shortcut, but what are some of the ways that they can um, get to that valuable discussion and that valuable debate more quickly? When you bring them all together, or are you talking about the staff? Yeah, or, yeah. I'm thinking of the role of a, a chair having to um, kind of customize their query for each member of the board. Each member's the the board's unique experience, um, their introversion or extroversion, their their cultural background, um, and then not only having to do that for nine directors next year, let's say it's twelve directors. So that's that much more work. Um, is it just as simple as setting aside more time, or just spending more time? Preparing, preparing, not preparing. A lot more time for the board meeting, for sure. Mm-hmm. 
it's funny, we're doing two evaluations right now, and that's the biggest complaint. We don't have enough time. And board meetings have been sort of hybrid now and remote mm-hmm. versus in person. And everybody's saying, can we please just go back to in person? Because it does make a difference. And it does give you a little more qualified time. If people get together for dinner the day, the night before, or they have time to get some of those topics covered in a casual way, which saves different use of time during the board meeting. Yeah. And that, that works. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, you can have multiple conversations going on at once, which you cannot do in a, in a Zoom room. Right. Um, and you can read body language and expressions a little bit better. You can know if that that really great idea really landed, or if it was kind of just a a moot um, a moot uh, reaction to that idea as well. Yeah. The other the other piece that's coming up a lot is the frustration around strategic thinking that you don't get enough time for discussions like that. The CEO of a company is presenting, 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 but there's no real discussion around strategic thought. Mm -hmm. Creating time for that is a query that lots of them are asking. And I always encourage a getaway time for that, where the board and the management can come together with a long view on strategic thinking, not the strategic plan, but the strategic thinking, and give insights that the management can then go back and inform the strategic plan on the basis so that you get that value of people's expertise offering ideation. And, you know, people call those retreats. I don't know why, because I always call them advances. Hello, what we're doing is the future. But if they can get a couple of days each year where they're doing that, it makes a big difference. And it sounds like you're talking about going beyond just the the annual plan for next year, the next 12 months of what are we doing in the next three, five, seven, 10 years as as an organization? Is that whole true? Long view. I mean, I mentioned this to you a long time ago, but one of the skills that we say directors have to have is to be Yoda, (laughs) understand the future. Yeah. Be able to contextualize the decisions that you're making. And you can't do that unless you have a longer view. Right. Do you feel like um, tabletop exercises help help do that? I mean, that's more tactical and almost kind of triage for a lot of boards, but to be able to say, okay, a great technological disruption has happened to us. What is our reaction plan or how are we going to, to, to pivot as an organization when something like AI or the next AI comes along? Does, does that help people um, kind of remove that day-to-day mindset and, and kind of yes. expand their thinking, so to speak? Yes, it can. There's a whole lot of um, techniques now for scenario gaming. Mm-hmm. Okay, imagine this happens. Let's write a scenario for how we react or break them into teams and do that and then compare the notes. That's a popular way that is happening. There's a gentleman in Italy who's producing a technique for that that's being used by a number of companies. Very cool. Yeah, we've, um, just as as somebody that contributes to the cybersecurity uh, profile for our organization, um, response to a cybersecurity incident, that like a tabletop or a strategic thinking exercise around that really does solidify, oh, I did the wrong thing there or, Here's what we're going to document going forward, or who here's who I need to contact when I have a problem. So yeah, yeah, I think those exercises are good, and to the extent that you learn something, that's great. If you learn what not to do in the future, you saved yourself some trouble, so that's great. Right. 
Okay, to take it back to evaluations, and we, we, we've talked about uh, a little bit about you know, uh, organizational performance, but when you bring that down to the director level performance, um, how does that, that conversation change? And, and what is the, the tenor of that conversation when somebody's underperforming? Um, we generated data recently that said uh, you know, almost two thirds of all boards said that uh, at least one or more of their directors, about 10% of the average board, um, could be replaced or they're, they're largely ineffective. How do you have that tough conversation with a director who may be underperforming? Less than half of the clients that we have have got the courage to do 360s. Mm-hmm. Now, in Europe, 360s were done very, very early on, and they push it. Although the first one we ever did, there was a gentleman who said, I have to quit. Everybody hates me. But we got over that, right, and showed them the things that they could do to change it. So. Most executives who are now serving on board should be familiar with getting feedback. It should be part of most management training anyway. So taking that feedback one-on-one, and when we do it, we include that and sit down and have the one-on-one. Now we're a neutral party. So they, they don't get too wrapped around the axle on that one because we're just sharing some feedback so that they can then take that to the table in the future. Mm-hmm. Most, most of the people that we have done that with have been grateful more than upset. Now, I have to go talk to a chair this week, and everybody's really upset with him. And so that's going to be an interesting one, but I'm bringing someone that he's known for years as a friend. We're doing it together so that it'll balance it out. Mm-hmm. And we'll so do they, it. Can, they can handle a candid conversation or candid feedback. Right. And we will do it very carefully and charmingly. And then we'll see what he does with the next meeting. And if everybody goes, whoa, this is a different dude in the chair, then we've done it. Yeah. It's a shame uh, trying. I think that's uh, it, it's hard to it's hard to remember and easy to forget that that everybody has blind spots or, or opportunities for improvement. And I, I think that's the, in my view at least, that's a mark of a true professional. Something that says, "Oh, okay, that is an opportunity or something that I could solve for." Um, is that feedback anonymous? Typically, you mentioned the, the chair and his his longtime friend or her friend. Um, is that when you give that three hundred and sixty feedback, does it come from anonymous sourcing? So it's more candid and less. Yes. Um, Chaotic, not chaotic, but less um, yes. reflected. Well, for example, in this case, we've interviewed 10 people and we're just giving back some behaviors that need to be changed mm-hmm. without saying from whom the comments come. Unless somebody doesn't care and says, you need to know that Anne Marie <laughs> is really upset or, you know, something along those lines. But, you know, the delicacies of some of these are entertaining too. One CEO was during the COVID period at Christmas time, sending out a little basket of food and wine so that they're going to have their remote meeting, but to celebrate, right? Mm -hmm. The chair of the board was really upset because he had spent a lot of money on really, really, really expensive wine and felt that that was not fair use of monies of the company. It it was questionable, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to tell the CEO, could you get a lesser expensive bottle of wine (laughs) without saying who was upset? Yeah. (laughs) You know, and it's, it's, Easy to fix once, that's one thing. But in a case like this one we're going to discuss, this man cuts off one particular director every time the director opens her mouth. Mm -hmm. 
and everybody says it's just so rude. Do you think it's something they're aware of? Because I, I find that a lot of times that in a great saying on this that, that I heard that kind of re, uh, reordered my perspective is that the uh, um, the reaction is the listeners, um, the, the listener can choose to react however they want and other people listening can react how they ever want. Uh, it's not up to the speaker to determine what the listener's reaction is. I, I always thought that was a great just piece of advice of, oh, okay, maybe I should be more thoughtful in the way I'm, I'm approaching people. Um, do you think that that chair is aware that they're doing that or is I'm it? Sure, I'm sure the chair is not. Mm-hmm. And once it's brought up, it'll go away. It, it's interesting to hear the chair's version of what he'd like to see for improvement of the board, which was to get to know these new people and be more collaborative and understand them. And they're saying he doesn't understand us. Now talk about two sides that want the same thing, but happen right. is an interesting thing to fix. Mm-hmm. Since their passions are, or their pleas are the same, we can sort of tease with that one a little bit. Yeah. Like, Let's make it happen. It's an interesting comparison of notes of, hey. <laughs> it's so interesting that much of the board elements have to do with the human psychology as opposed to the challenges on the, on the table. Mm-hmm. Which means having a good psychologist on your board isn't a bad idea. <laughs> but the challenges ahead do require a lot more expertise in areas that we never, ever would have considered two decades ago. Yeah. And that means we have to be continuing students always. Our, our obligation is to never go to sleep, just keep studying. <laughs> It just keeps changing and we have to be able to understand the value of those changes and know what to use and what not to use and mm-hmm. take things like AI that can be helpful, but there are risks with it and you've got to study that and you have to know what the decision science is underneath it to make sure it's going to work for you and the understanding the right questions to ask to make sure. Yeah. And it, you, I think there's two really interesting elements of the, you know, uh, topics that we've already discussed so far. One, you know, diversity and getting, you know, uh, people who may may have never served on boards or, you know, or less represented on boards on the boards. And then there's also that, that professional expertise or, or technical expertise that boards need more of. I think the, I, I can't recall the study, but um, I'll probably misquote the figure, but one of the, the most highly in demand director skills last year was cybersecurity expertise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Next year will probably artificial expertise, artificial intelligence expertise. Um, and we know there's certainly executive level uh, folks and, and you know your CISOs or your, your CTOs. Um, should they be contributing to the board meeting or should they be getting developed and, and groomed to be directors? Or Well, that's the tricky part of this. Bringing somebody in because of their subject matter expertise puts them in a swim lane. And they're a great asset to the board because they can turn to that person and get the answer that they need. But unless they get up on the top of the bed, you know, the business and look at it from above and understand the, the rest of the duties that go with it, they're minimal in their contribution. Mm-hmm. You know, many people during that moment of time when everybody said, we've got to get one, were c- reaching out to us. And I would say, you better take one of our board certification programs so that you understand the breadth of the duties, not just your swim lane. And many people who are getting certified 
to be able to do risk management stuff will come over and take it so that they can do more. Otherwise, they get very quiet in a board meeting because they're, they may even have an idea, but they're afraid to bring it up because they're so respectful for the time it took for them to be an expert that they don't want to speak up for other topics where they're not. Mm-hmm. But getting them to a strategic level at the balcony of the business is important. Yeah. Instead of just in the back room of IT or, or what have you. Yeah. Great. Um, Donna, this is really eye-opening. I'm, I'm really excited for our, our webinar um, session coming up soon. Um, it will probably uh, be happening before this this episode reaches broadcast. But um, if, if anybody wanted to, to um, consult you for services, where, where can they find you or what's the best avenue to reach out to you? Well, they can reach out to boardwise.biz and see a lot of material there and take a look at services. We provide both governance work and management consulting work. We do say that the balance between those two is important. So if someone's interested in either side of the scale, they'll find plenty of material there or they can reach out to me um, personally, my Email is there. You'll see it on the website as well as our phone number. And we love to hear from anybody anywhere in the world. <laughs> That's great. And then I, I will probably fix this in post, but the the it's board ready certification. Is that right? Say it again. You have a like a certification like board board ready. Is that it? We have a board certification called professional board. Okay. Yes. All right. And it is open and online right now, mm-hmm. which we provide, and it's in modules of two hours. Okay. Out over nine weeks. But we also do a program at Harvard once a year, and we did it in June this year, which is a global governance certification. And we had 13 countries represented there. And it was amazing and challenging and exciting to learn because of the different perspectives from all of these different views. Here's a case, here's a predicament. Well, in Germany, it's this way, in Japan, it's this way, Vietnam, it's this way. And there's no right answers. You have to figure out what's wise mm-hmm. moment. And that intellect challenge is important because that's what boards are facing now. Between yeah. change, between having more uh, design thinking so that you can figure out what to do, the cultural differences, the ethics that are going on for, for decision-making, it is not a job for everybody. Right. But if you're brave enough to want to take it on, you know that you are going to be a constant learner and you'll be proud of yourself for doing it. That's great. Yeah. It, our, our co-founder Perun has often said, and I, I kind of take this with a grain of salt that the, the boardroom acts as triage for the rest of the organization in terms of strategy and risk and, and, you know, future planning and, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the boardroom first. That's what well, better. <laughs> it happened in the back end. Right. And then um, what would you recommend for, say, a woman director or somebody who may not have kind of the traditional board director background, like a CTO? What, what are some of the resources that they can go and learn from and, and you know, continue that, that, that lifetime of learning or, or studentship? Well, they can come to us. That's part of our, (laughs) we're doing all kinds of educational workshops and things for directors, but depending on where somebody is, there's access to programs through like the National Association of Corporate Directors. Mm -hmm. Um, We also play nice with lots of the organizations that are expertise categories, like the Risk Institute. Mm 
mm-hmm. nonprofit and, and does a lot of educational components. It, depending on what somebody's looking for, there's lots of opportunity out there to get things and you can't do them all at once unless you're really a person who never goes to sleep or has lucid dreams and can do things. In their <laughs> sleep. But um, if they would like resources or things, anybody can reach out and I can guide on, you know, the mix of things that are available. Yeah, that's great. I, I find that, you know, when I, when I look for those resources or explore, there, there seems to be more than, more than I can even account for. So choosing the right one can be the most difficult thing. Analysis paralysis, so to speak. I, I did want to um, mention too, that when you were asking a little bit about the profile skills for good directors of the future, and I was just playing around and I used the AI chat and put in, you know, what are the top profile skills? Yeah. The first thing that came up was your website citation on skills as the number one place. <laughs> That's great. So I thought that was good advertising. <laughs> well, we have uh, we have an intelligence. It might be artificial, but I guess we have it. <laughs> it was cute. <laughs> Yeah, we're uh, we are uh, just it's it's amazing what some of these tools can do. Uh, and one thing that we caution all directors to say is don't put in confidential information, don't put in strategic information in those tools because that goes into the model and the model will spit it back out to somebody else asking something similar. So yeah, <laughs> the funny line I heard recently from a lawyer friend of mine was about AI, and he didn't make this up, but he heard it too. Was all right. Before we spend a lot of time and money on artificial intelligence, shouldn't we consider investing in ways to protect ourselves from natural stupidity? (laughs) (laughs) And because I taught critical thinking skills for a long time at, you know, college level and things, there's something to that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, even even from a, a security or a risk profile, I, I, I think it was something like 80% of all data breaches were, were due to human error, not even intentional. Just, hey, I, I put in the wrong email or I, uh, I you know, added a zero to the end of this thing and it should have been a one. So, yeah. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, Donna, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Uh, as always, we're really just uh, honored to have you with us and, and your, your expertise is certainly valued in, in terms of uh, boards around the world and what you share with us. So thank you. Well, thank you for the invitation. 